Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. By the way, today, you've noticed there's a lot of talk nowadays in the news about people getting radical. You seen that? We're always talking about radical Islam. And we're going con- to convert you or we're going to kill you. And sometimes we're going to convert you and kill you. That, that's pretty radical stuff out there. Nowadays, you also hear, thanks, Chris, by the way. Nowadays, you also hear uh, about the, the radical left. Uh, people who are in the Democratic Party who are maybe more socialists than they've ever been before. And you hear about the radical left nowadays. It's oftentimes we think about the word radical now has sort of a negative connotation with it. You don't want to be radical. <laughs> That's a bad thing. But you know, sometimes radical is actually a, a good thing. Say you went to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you have cancer. You don't want the doctor to say, but we're going to deal with it casually. No, you want the doctor to get on top of it. We're going to deal with this radically. Let's get on top of this thing and get this out of my body because this is a life or death situation. So sometimes it's the right thing to be radical about stuff. Now this morning as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we find that Jesus is going to say there is some stuff in our life that we have to deal with and we have to deal with it radically. It's more deadly than cancer. It can destroy us with greater ramifications than any cancer can. And what is this that we have to deal with in our life radically with that is so deadly? It's called sin. We have to, do, we have to be radical about it, not letting it continue to grow, dominate, and control our lives. Now, um, what I'd like you to do as we get ready to study the key passage we're at this morning is turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. While you're turning there, let me make sure you actually turn in your text for this. This is very important, so have your Bibles open. Don't just try to follow along in the notes at this point. Uh, as you turn there, I, what I want you to do is I want you to look for verse 44 and verse 46 in your text. So you're going to see the text we're studying today has a number of challenges to it. It has some interesting challenges that we're going to address here at the front end of the message, and then it has some interesting um, expository or exegetical challenges we'll address at the back end of the message. So how many of you have successfully found verses 44 and 46? You, you, some of you have found it. Some of you say no. Some of you have it in your Bible. Some of you are missing it from your Bible. You guys who don't have it in your Bible got shortchanged. I mean, they, they took some verses away. But what's going on? Why are those two verses missing from most Bibles and you find them there with other Bibles? Well, let me explain this to you. If you're following along on your outline, it's actually the very top thing. Uh, where are the missing verses? Many of you know that uh, the letter of Mark or that we're studying was written by John Mark, and it was intended to be copied, and they didn't have Xerox back then, so they had to copy everything by hand. And when you copy things by hand, sometimes you don't write exactly what was in the original. 
Well, we know that there was a scribe, call him a rogue, rogue scribe, not near the time of John Mark, but hundreds and hundreds of years after John Mark, after there had been hundreds of copies of the Gospel of Mark written, he was duplicating one of the copies, and he inserted two verses in there. It would be verses 44 and 46. And since some people copied his copy, they continued to copy verses, what were 44 and 46, in, in, in their copies. Now, the, the big question is, should those verses be there? Quite honestly, absolutely not. We know that when this took place was hundreds of years later. Uh, the, all the older copies do not have these verses. They should not be there. But in the 1500s, there were some copies of the Bible that had been hand-done that had those verses in it. They didn't have all the details. And in the 1500s, where they added verse numbers, they said, well, we should put some numbers on these verses. Well, we're not quite too sure what to do with them. But um, now we know they were never there, never originally intended to be there. Um, that's why the ESV that we use does not have those verses there, because they were not in the original. The New International Version does not have those verses. Both the ESV and the NIV deal with that by a footnote. The New American Standard Bible that maybe some of you have does include those verses, but puts a bracket around it and says, by the way, these were not in the originals, and there's really no question about that. Now, this is highly unusual because when people copied God's Word, they did it very carefully and very accurately. Now, the next question is, you're probably going, what did those verses say? I wish I could know what they said, and I'm going to tell you what they said, which is the next bullet point in your outline. What did the missing verses say? All the scribe did, Mr. Rogue Scribe here, was simply recopy what it says in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So at least he didn't add anything to God's Word. Just out of the emphasis of trying to make it important, he repeated something that already existed one time, three times. So even though he was a rogue scribe, which makes him a bad scribe, at least he wasn't creating anything new. Just repeating what already existed. So this explains why there's two verses missing in this passage and where they went and why we're not really worried about them. It's just verse 48 repeated two more times. Now let's actually read the words of, in that passage that do belong there. So I'd like you to stand out of reverence for God's Word now that we've all turned there and found the missing verses. And I'm going to read verses 42 through 50 I'd like you to follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You may be seated. So what we find here is this passage is talking about one big topic. It's talking about sin and the importance in getting radical in our lives when it comes to dealing with sin. At the beginning, he talks about two ways we have to be radical in dealing with sin. And at the end, he talks about two reasons why we need to be radical in dealing with sin. So follow along in your outline under point one. What does it mean to get radical about sin? Let's look at the first way. Stop doing what might cause a young Christian to stumble into sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Just a little secret. You want to get on my good side? Be helpful to my kids. I love my kids. You want to get on my bad side in a hurry? Hurt my children. Or do something nasty to my kids. Because I'm a parent. Parents are protective of their children. And this is not exclusive to me. I assume every parent in this room feels the same way. You love people who are helpful to your kids. You really have your blood pressure go high when somebody is mean or nasty or hurtful to your kids. And what Jesus is saying here, you know, I'm protective of my kids too. Not just you being protective of your kids. I'm really protective of those people who are young Christians, who are young in their faith. Do not do anything that would lead them into sin. Now, the question that comes off of this is, well, who are these children that he talks about here? He says, any one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. We remember in the last week when we were studying this, we learned that Jesus was used an illustration of a child. Remember, his child was old enough to stand up, yet still young enough to pick up. And he said when he picked up that child, whoever receives one such little child receives me. And the key is the word such. One such little child. He's not just talking at that time about one who is always a literal child, but one who is such, who is like that child. Sometimes you have adults that can be like children too, right? Now in this passage, there is that continued um, intentional ambiguity on the child's thing going on here. Who receives one of these little ones? Well, who are the little ones? Just physically little? Or could it be somebody who is older who is little, like a young Christian. It's the Greek word micron here. And the word child is not used in here directly. Micron means somebody who is literally could be small or of little influence or of little importance. So the intentional ambiguity here means that this could be talking about a young adult Christian or it could be talking about a young child Christian. Both of them are covered in this text. They are not to be led into sin. Don't do anything that would lead them into sin. Because Jesus is really protective of his kids. 
just like you and I are protective of our kids, especially when they're young, especially when they're weak, especially when they're defenseless and vulnerable. Now, the next thing that comes on here is this word sin. It's not the usual word for sin, which is hamartia. It's the Greek word skandalizomai. What it means is to trip. If somebody is going along next to you and you intentionally put something in front of them so they fall on their face, that's what this word is saying. Don't you, as a mature Christian, go along and be next to a young Christian and trip them up and have them fall into sin. That's heartless. That's terrible. That's never something you want to do. In fact, he says, if you're going to do that, it would be better if there was a large rock hung around your neck and you went for a big swim in the sea. And the specifics on this are that a large millstone would be hung around your neck. And the Greek in this is very specific. It's actually called a mule millstone. Historically, you could have hand stones that were not too big, that you used to crush grain, one rock on the bottom, another rock on top, and you moved around. That's not one of these. It's not a rock this big. It's a rock much larger. They had ones that were moved only by animals called mule millstones, which is this one referred to. The bottom rock is six feet in diameter. It is several tons. The top rock is also extremely, extremely heavy, and it could only be moved by an animal. Like It would be preferable if one of those big ones, those massive ones, were hung around your neck and we dropped you into the sea. That is how protective I am of my kids. Don't do anything that would cause young Christians to stumble. Because I love them. But as the text continues here, you have to understand there's actually another reason that Jesus is so incredibly protective of his kids. Not just because he loves them, but you realize when a young Christian or even an adult Christian stumbles into sin or falls into sin or gets caught up into sin, we're not just doing this on our own. Technically, we're taking Jesus Christ with us into our sin. Or that young Christian is taking Christ with them into the sin. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 17. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, that becomes a Christian, becomes one spirit with him. So when you and I became a Christian, the Spirit of Christ came inside of us. He lives inside of us. He produces conviction. He produces guidance. And when all of a sudden you have a young Christian that now is getting pushed into sin, who's going into that sin with them? The Spirit of Christ. Jesus. You think that grieves Jesus? Oh, majorly. This continues. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul before he had been converted on the road to Damascus and he was persecuting Christians? And Jesus showed up on Acts chapter 9, knocks him on his backside, and what does Jesus say to, to Saul at that time? And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. By Saul persecuting Christians, 
he was persecuting Jesus because Christians have Jesus within them. And if a young Christian, therefore, is stumbling into sin, they're taking Jesus with them into sin. The Scriptures say this in Matthew 18, But woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You don't be the one, want to be the one tempting other people into sin. So Jesus is protective of his kids like you and I are protective of our kids. Now the question becomes, how? How could we be tempting, or what might we be doing to tempt young Christians into sin. I have a couple examples here. Sometimes it's just simply direct, overt temptation. I'll give you an example. Say there's a mother and a daughter, and they went down to Spencer to do some shopping, and they end up spending extra time in Spencer doing the shopping, and they know they're supposed to meet Dad at 5 o'clock uh, back at home for dinner, and they end up running late because they stayed too late shopping. But the mother says to the daughter, just tell Dad the traffic was really bad in Arnold's Park. That's why we're late. Now, it's a white lie. It's not a big lie. But that daughter is watching that mother. mother. That daughter is learning it's okay to lie. You don't always have to be completely honest with your husband. You don't always need to tell Dad the truth. And next thing you know, what is the daughter doing to Mom? Lying following in her footsteps. You see how this works? How easy it is to lead a younger Christian into sin by them watching our lives? Another example, when I was a youth pastor many years ago, uh, I was a youth pastor in Michigan, and we were on the shore of Lake Michigan, and one of the things we used to like to do on Sundays was go out boating on Lake Michigan with the kids. And we had a lot of kids in the youth group, and there was a lot of people in the church that had boats. One younger couple in the church, they had this really cool boat. It was like a twin-engine race boat. So which boat do you think all the kids wanted to be on? That boat. And the boat, like every other boat, has a capacity sticker on it. It only has this many people on board. And routinely, they would overload the boat. And I remember talking to them, I'm like, you know, you're overloading the boat with the youth group kids from the church. This is not a good idea. It's not a good example to show to them. And I probably should have said, Jesus has a really large rock and a rope for this kind of stuff. And you're on the water. This is not a good combo. Well, they agreed to not overload the boat, but I later found out they'd only not overload the boat with youth group kids if... I was present, but when I wasn't there for an event, they went right back to the old ways. Jesus would say, don't do anything, anything that would cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to lead them into sin. Another example, as a youth pastor, we had uh, kids would oftentimes get together at some of the youth leaders' houses. Uh, one of the youth leaders, he liked to watch movies. He was really, that was his thing. And so his kids would watch movies, and they would bring other kids over to watch movies. And I found, soon discovered that they would just watch a lot of the R-rated movies. 
And I talked to him. I'm like, R-rated movies? Well, you know what that means. Usually lots of body bags. There's going to be a nudie scene in it. You're going to have a couple in bed that almost is guaranteed not to be married, having intercourse. But you're doing this with all the youth group kids, not just your kids. The kids who are looking up to you about what is right and what is wrong and what are the standards that they're going to follow. Jesus has a large rock and a rope for these things. His response to me was, you're just a legalist. No. Jesus says, don't do anything that would cause my kids to stumble because I love them, whether that's a young Christian adult or even a young adult. Another example. Let's move from direct temptation where we ask somebody to join in our sin or follow our example. How about indirect temptation, which is where we're not going out of our way to do anything necessarily wrong, but maybe we're just failing to do some things that are right. Not just in Crosswind Church, but in all churches across the country, there are people who are visitors in that church on a Sunday. Usually what the people are doing is they're coming to check out Jesus, but the way they check out Jesus is by checking out his people. And so what happens is uh, visitors come to church, they check out Jesus by checking out his people, the service is done, people go into the foyer, and then the people who go to the church usually end up talking to their friends, and the visitors are sort of left standing around, wondering, is this place going to be any different? Will they treat me like every place else in the world? Or will they go out of their way to love me? Will they go out of their way to meet me? Will they go out of their way to care for me? And let me just tell you, you have between 15 to 30 seconds while they're asking those questions. And then they will choose to leave. And at first they may go and say, well, this church isn't any different than any place else. They'll come back maybe a week and try it again. The next week and try it again. But after a while, if nothing changes, what do they conclude? That God's people are no different than any other people. They don't care about me. And as young Christians, they can be led into sin that way. Another example. Uh, and by this, I just put this down by being a poor example. And by being a poor example, I thought of one thing in particular. And I was thinking at that point about church leaders and the ramifications for how their leadership works out in the congregation and the denominations that they lead in. What came to mind for me is I've been studying through kings and chronicles in the Old Testament and looking at the influence of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. You find repeatedly the good kings, it says, well, they had a great and a good influence on the people of the land. The bad kings, they had a terrible influence on the people of the land because the speed of the leaders is the speed of the team. Leadership is hugely important. Here's an example of one of them, a bad guy. 2 Chronicles 33.9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That guy's leadership led many astray. I got thinking, you know, there's a lot of churches and denominations out there where the leaders in those denominations are leading countless people astray. For instance, look at the LGBTQ plus movement. Some 
churches and denominations embrace it and, and celebrate it. The Bible says that it should be one man and one woman. You know, other denominations have a very low view of this book. The Crosswinds and some other denominations have a very high view of this book. And where does that all come from? And where does it all start from? The leaders. The leaders having influence on the people. So, the point is, in here, Jesus is very protective of his kids. Do not do anything that would cause young Christian adults or young Christian kids to stumble and make sure you do not lead them into sin. Now, Jesus continues from looking at other people to looking at ourselves. Do whatever it takes to keep from falling into sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your foot, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says, when it comes to dealing with sin in our lives, we must be willing to get radical with it. You may need to cut off your hand. You may need to cut off your foot. You may need to gouge out your eye. Before we go too far into that, you need to understand the kind of language that Jesus is using. This is not literal language. It's called hyperbolic language. It's using the language of exaggeration to make a point. Like take the plank out of your own eye before you focus on taking the speck of dust out of somebody else's eye. That's language of exaggeration. If any of you can get a 4 by 8 in your eyeball socket, let me know. But this is the same thing here. Do whatever you have to to deal with sin in your life that is becoming persistent, that you are toying with, that you keep, find, keep finding yourself falling to. Now, by the way, just so you know, another piece of evidence that this cannot mean what Jesus is literally saying, that we should cut off our hands and pull out our eyes uh, to stop sin, just so you know, people with one eye can lust just as well with, as people with two eyes. People with one foot can get themselves into sinful situations just as well as people with two feet. The feet and the hands and the eyes, doesn't matter how many of them you have. He's just using a language of exaggeration. Now, James chapter 1, verse 14 tells us where our sinful desires come from. It's not our body parts. It's our heart. James 1, 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So, sin always begins in the heart but these verses are saying we have to make practical choices. We have to be willing to make very hard choices to fight the patterns of sin that are in our life. We have to be able to do whatever we need to to cut off those avenues of sin that we keep falling prey to. When he says be willing to gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, or cut off your foot, He's saying, be willing to make sure you um, 
change the things you look at, change the things you do, or change the places you go so you can cut sin off from your life. Here's some examples. What are the temptations of the eye that you may need to cut off so you don't keep falling to sin? Guys, let me just be real practical about this. Somewhere between 60, 70, or even more percent of the adult men in America are struggling with or looking at pornography. It is a very, very common temptation that men are falling to with its ease of access on the internet. All kinds of unhelpful things to look at are only one click away. Guys, you have to get radical with your struggle with sin. You have to say, I need to do whatever I need to do to shut down that temptation or the avenue of that temptation from my life. Now, obviously, Jesus is the one who is the one who gives us victory over sin, but you still have to be practical about it. Maybe you need to get like a porn blocker on your computer. Get something like Covenant Eyes. You can download that. It's a real cheap program, and it filters what comes on your websites. But my favorite part of Covenant Eyes, it doesn't just filter your websites. It has an accountability tool on it, so you can choose to be accountable and have it report to a friend what websites you are looking at. If you're married, here's my suggestion. Make your accountability partner your wife. If she gets a few bad reports, trust me, your porn, your porn addiction will be over in a hurry. Dinner does not taste good when it's been burned. But that's the truth. That's getting radical, being honest that way. I know other men who have said, you know, I still struggle with this. In fact, I don't even have a smartphone anymore. You know how hard it was for me to find a dumb phone? But he said, that I need to get radical. Because I keep looking at things that are unhelpful when I'm tired, when I'm weak, when I'm lonely on my smartphone. So I got radical. And that's exactly the right thing to do. That's what this text is saying. Get radical in your struggle with sins of the eye. Other people have said, you know, I can't even have the internet in my house. All I can do is watch movies. <laughs> that's not weakness. That's wisdom. That's a man who's saying, I want to get radical in this struggle and shut down any avenue that I keep falling into sin. That's exactly what this passage is telling us to do. I'll give you another example, temptations of the feet. That has to do with what are the places that we go that we continue to fall into sin. When I was in college, I had you know, friends like everybody else does, and I had some friends that when you'd hang out at their house on a Friday night, Usually anything that happened after 10 p.m. ended up being pretty stupid. And after a while, the Lord's working on my heart, and I'm going, you know, do you really want to go over there again? I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to end up being pretty stupid, and I'm going to feel really bad about it on Saturday morning. So you start to say to yourself, maybe I just need to cut those friends out of my life. Time to get radical in your struggle against sin. You know it's a persistent thing. It's happening again. And again, so I can't go there. I can't walk there. My feet cannot take me over that house. Now, that's what it takes. Maybe for you, if you were to do that right now, you're going to go, that's terrible. I won't have any friends. 
That's okay. Get radical in your struggle against sin. Be willing to pay the price of not having friends for a period of time, if that's what it takes. Give you another example here. How about temptations of the hand? And I know this particular example could fall under temptation of the eye or temptation of the feet as well. But we had a, a friend that was a friend of Cindy and I. Real great guy, real generous guy, but he struggled with gambling. I remember one time he came into our house. It was between Christmas and New Year's. And he had a talk with me. He had just blown several thousands of dollars at the casino. And, well, of course, he shouldn't have used his feet to walk to the casino. <laughs> shouldn't have used his eyes to, like, get into all that. But I said, you can't even pick up cards. You just need to say, I cannot pick up cards in my life anymore. Because for me, it's a temptation. It just wants to go right back to that old gambling addiction. You need to get radical. Just totally drop that stuff from your life. Now, here's what I want you to notice. This is going to be hard for some people to hear, but I want you to stay engaged with me as we talk about this. What does Jesus say is the consequence of not being willing to get radical in your struggle with sin? Does he say that it'll mean that you'll become a carnal Christian? Does he say that maybe you'll just become a second-rate Christian? What does he say is on the line here? Tell me. Eternity. Hell. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, it doesn't make sense. I know that it's once saved, always saved. We're saved by grace, through faith. As long as I believe in Christ, I'm saved. And I'm not disagreeing with any of that. While we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that faith is never completely alone. Because saving faith will produce a hunger for holiness in our life. Saving faith will produce a desire to fight against sin in our life. Saving faith will engage this battle that we're talking about in this text. And if there is no battle in your life to fight against sin, especially repeated sin, then the question becomes is maybe, maybe the faith you had wasn't saving faith in the first place at all. Maybe you didn't have genuine faith because there is no evidence of it in your life because there's no fight for holiness in your life. Now, am I saying that you cannot struggle, have, have a long-term struggle with sin? No, I'm not saying that at all. Don't confuse this. I'm just saying there needs to be a battle and the a battle against sin in our life is evidence of the presence of God in our life. So, let me just uh, look at the highlighted verse I have here for you. Actually, not a verse. It's a statement I put down. While salvation is by grace through faith, there are verses that warn us of dire consequences when Christians to con continue in habitual sin. And this is one of them. So, these verses are some of the strongest in the Bible about warning us against failing to deal with habitual sin in our life. We must be radical when we fight against sin, realizing that those who are not radical and are not engaged in this fight really are setting themselves up for hell on the line here. Look what these verses say. 2 Corinthians 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There is going to be a battle. Let us cleanse ourselves. Or Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, we engage in a battle against sin when we come to Christ. And Jesus is the one who gives us victory over sin. But as part of that battle, we have to get radical in cutting off those avenues that we keep falling into sin. Just some practical advice in this. Unwillingness to get radical maybe means there wasn't salvation itself. Now I began wondering, this is a little funky theologically. Uh, is there an example of this in Scripture? Something we could fall back onto to see this actually working out in life? The example that came to mind is a guy called Judas. Remember him? Judas, one of the twelve, one of the inner twelve. When Jesus sent out his apostles to cast out demons and to perform healing, Nobody returned and says, hey, everybody can cast out demons and perform healings, but Judas, as far as we know, he was in that group doing those things. But John chapter 12 tells us that Judas was in the habit of stealing from the money bag. I checked between services to make sure I was remembering correctly. It's a present continual tense. So Judas didn't just steal from the money bag of the disciples once, he stole from it continually. And there's no evidence that he ever repented of that sin. No evidence he got radical with that sin. No evidence that he ever fought against that sin. He just kept enjoying the extra cash. Where does that lead Judas? Into greater and greater sin. Judas ends up betraying Jesus. This is what Jesus says about Judas at the end. In Mark chapter 14, where the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that that man, if he had not even been born. You know, Jesus says, not getting radical with sin, not dealing with sin, can have some really dire consequences, like hell itself. It may mean you never even knew Christ to begin with. Now, we've looked at the two ways we need to get radical in dealing with sin. Never leading a young Christian astray. Also, being radical with the sin in our life and being willing to pay a high price to deal with it. Now, let's look at these two reasons why. Why should I get radical about sin? And that is, number one, our fight against sin is one of the ways God creates spiritual maturity. The text is in verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. I told you we're going to have some tough text at the end. This is the tough text. Everyone will be salted with fire. Can't you imagine me in my study this week going, how am I going to preach that? Well, I'll do my best to explain it to you. And I'll also tell you that the, the, the scholars don't have a really definitive explanation here, but I think I'm pretty on the money with this particular explanation. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salted, salt is used in the ancient world 
is their main and primary preservative. They don't have refrigerations, no Kenmore, no Frigidaire. The fish is salted. The meat is salted. The vegetables are pickled. Everything has salt in it to preserve it. Even the offerings in the Old Testament were salted. The grain offering, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, says you add salt to your offerings, and the salt had the idea of the permanence, the enduring nature of God's covenant. So salt is a preservative to make things last. But he says here, you're going to be preserved by fire. What's going on with this fire? Understand that fire is obviously pain. Fire is obviously suffering. There is a preservation value that comes with pain and suffering. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when we go through trials in this life for following Christ, those actually are some of the really best things for us because trials in this life purifies our faith. The trials in this life matures our faith. And the trials we go through in this life helps us make sure our faith endures and goes the long haul. What kind of trials was Jesus just talking about? The trials of getting radical in your fight against sin. Trials of disconnecting the internet. The trials of maybe giving up some friends that you know are leading you astray so you find yourself lonely. Those trials that you go through because you're getting radical in your fight against sin, they're actually a good battle. Those are the trials that God uses to mature your faith and to strengthen your faith so you do last for the long haul. You'll be salted with fire. You means you'll be preserved through times of suffering. Look what it says in Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the sufferings produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Sufferings have a good place in the Christian life. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the trials and pain of getting radical in your dealing with sin are a good thing. They strengthen and build your faith. And then on the back side of our outlines, it continues. Our victories over sin through Jesus makes him attractive to others. It continues with salt. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This last little phrase that was more obviously um, familiar to people in that day than it is in our day, about being salted with fire, that had to do with salt's preservational value. This particular phrase, when it talks about salt, deals with salt in its flavoring value. Does anybody like pretzels without salt? You're crazy. Pretzels with salt are much better. Popcorn without salt? French fries without salt? No. Salt makes things taste good. In fact, here's what you can say. It says right here, you're reading in Scripture, salt is good. Amen. 
you know, shake, shake, shake. I can see you guys at lunch today. Salt is good. I saw it in the scriptures because it adds flavor to things. But then he says, if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Uh, we had in first service a, a chemist that was in the room, and he knew about this. But uh, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Because salt is a stable compound. So you can leave salt forever, and it won't lose its saltiness. So what is Jesus talking about here? Here's where you need to bridge from chemistry to history. In this day, where did they get their salt from? Most of it came from the Dead Sea, which meant you take a bunch of seawater, and you dry it out, and on the bottom was a bunch of sea salt. But here's the thing to realize. That sea salt was not pure salt. It was mixed with a lot of impurities. One of the most common things that it was mixed with was something called gypsum. Gypsum looks like salt when it dries, but gypsum is not salt. It is a tasteless mineral. And so here's what you have. You have salt and gypsum mixed together as it comes out of the Dead Sea when it's all been dried. And then when you get this gypsum salt mix, gets around moisture, guess what leaches out first? the real salt leaches out, leaving this stuff that looks just like salt, being the gypsum, that is left behind. And here's the problem when you put it on your french fries. It doesn't taste like salt anymore. It's completely useless. And Jesus says, you know, when salt has lost its saltiness, it's just gypsum, it's useless. But you guys are to have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You are to have a specific flavor about you that makes you attractive to other people. And that's supposed to be seen in the peace that you have with one another, the unity you have as apostles and disciples together. Now, let me pause for a moment. Last week, were the apostles in peace and unity at this point? Remember what they were arguing about when they came back from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum? They're arguing over who is the greatest. They're not at peace with one another anymore. They're arguing with one another. How attractive do you think that made the gospel to everyone else around them in Capernaum when they see the disciples arguing over who's the greatest? Not attractive at all. What do you think that was doing to the young Christians that were watching? You think they were starting to stumble into sin and learning that maybe they should start arguing about who's the greatest as well? Oh yeah, they're stumbling into sin. In fact, unless they get radical and start to deal with this sin of pride in their life, what can ultimately be on the line? Their eternities itself. And so that's what we have here. Jesus makes a desperate and passionate plea to his disciples and to you and me. Get radical with our sin in our life. Don't do anything that would cause younger Christians to stumble. I love my kids, he says. Get radical with the sin in your life because you realize that if you continue to entertain it, you continue to enjoy it, and you don't, we don't repent of it and fight it, that's like Judas. That's heading to hell itself. But those battles that we go against sin, you know, they're not bad battles, they're good battles. 
who's in that trial, in that battle that we engage in when we fight sin and try to get away from our life, that's how God matures our faith. That's how God grows our faith. But not only that, when we end up fighting sin and we have holiness in our life, and we have peace and unity in our church, you know what that does? It makes Christians very attractive to the watching world around them. Because the world around us is bickering, it's fighting, it's American politics. But the church is in a different place. It's a peaceful place. It's a harmonious place, place where in humility we put others in front of ourselves because we've been radical and tried to deal with our sin through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we want to confess that many times we tolerate it with our sin and we toy with our sin. We don't get radical in fighting with our sin. I know as I gave this message, there are men and there are women with an earshot of my voice who had things that, Holy Spirit, you brought to their minds that they have been toying with, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe for years. I ask that you would give them courage today Courage that they would confess their sin to those they've sinned against. Courage to get an accountability partner if they need to get an accountability partner. That they would make a decision here and now to be radical in fighting with persistent sin. Because they know that eternity in one degree is on the line as well as their witness for you. I thank you, Jesus, that when we fight sin, well, we don't fight sin alone. We don't fight sin in our own strength. We fight sin with the power of the Holy Spirit and the energy of Jesus Christ inside of us. But we fight sin in community and with the help of others as we get radical in cutting off those things where we frequently fall. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.